It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rule book, to explore smarter ways to work and to rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Susan Campbell, and this is The Big Rethink. Today's episode is about an evolution in the art industry's use of technology to generate digital art. Our guest, Carmen Zella, serves as both creative director and principal at Now Art. Welcome, Carmen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to meet you. This is such a cool topic. I'm um, so excited about the intersection of art and uh, and technology. So um, in your role at Now Art and the Now Art Foundation, um, you play a key part in bringing important and inspiring artwork to the public. Can you share an overview of your work and sort of what your job entails? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to share more about my work. I'm the founder and creative director of Now Art. Um, Now Art is a public art agency, and um, I think it's, you know, I'd like to give you a little bit about my background um, because it sort of informs the work that I do with my agency and how I see uh, the trajectory of how I approach everything um, in my work. I... um, you know, started off as in theater and I was working at the Royal Court Theater upstairs in London in the 90s. And uh, I saw this incredible performance of De La Guarda. Um, it was their very first performance uh, called Vila Vila. And they're an Argentinian um, theater troupe. And they explored uh, physical theater, which basically physical theater had never been approached on the scene. And all of the audience in London were standing and the performers literally on bungee cords were coming down from the ceiling and lifting people out of the audience. It rained on everyone. It was this explosive. It was, it was amazing. It was this explosive energy and and so, you know, I, I left and when I left, I saw businessmen, you know, jumping down the street. I mean, it was like a totally uh, incredible experience to see how it played out um, with the audience. And I decided to go back to art school because I, I realized that the intersection of art with different disciplines was really, um, you know, not just energizing, but it was like a key way that I wanted to continue um, exploring and pursuing in terms of my career and, and life's work. So I took interdisciplinary art and that kind of segued me into, um, falling in love with public art because public art is a form that is constantly, um, at the intersection of multiple disciplines, not just with mm-hmm. site specificity, but with mediums, um, as well. And so I founded Now Art in 2016, with the mission to create, curate, and deliver accessible art to communities around the world. So we are a a 360 public art agency based in Los Angeles. We do everything from consulting, curating, and designing public art, and, and, and everything in between from activations to permanent pieces. So we, we've loved this, um, you know, this particular topic with technology and art because for me, it really, it's, it's something that is um, a topic that I can speak a lot about in terms of innovation, but development between um, multiple disciplines. 
you, you're really covering a lot of ground there. Let's uh, let's dig into that intersection of art and technology a little bit. And uh, what um, before we get, kind of get into the technology piece, though, how did digital art um, and become an art form? How, how did that kind of come to be? Yeah. So I love this this question. Um, so the history of digital art is, um, you know, it, it's technically digital art is any kind of art that is associated with computer generated graphics. But the way that we see digital art now, it incorporates uh, video and sound because those were analog systems, um, you know, which sort of started in the in the 70s. Um, but but digital art actually, you know, computer generated art started in the '60s with this artist called Charles um, Cesuri. He, the Smithsonian, has coined him as the inventor of digital art. Wow! Um, as well as in the mo- '60s. In the '60s, yeah. So he <laughs> used a Fortran program that used punch cards, and those punch cards contained graphic information that were used to drive drum plotting devices. And the software for that was only understood, only understood pen down and pen up for the beginning and the end segments. Um, But what's super cool about this artist is that he says that art takes place outside of the machine. And, and that's something that I, I, you know, I sort of want to continually through this talk, um, discuss a little bit. So the computer center for this artist in the 60s was a meeting ground for anyone interested in computers. And it, you know, engaged dialogues with colleagues from mathematics to physiology to computer science. And this, he was basically, um, you know, like the rock star in that, in that computer center, because he was interested in how the computer was relevant for an art practice. So all of the other students really helped him gain insights into new ideas about the representation and the control of art. But, um, you know, if you're thinking about like the terminology of digital art, it actually, that is such a new art form and it was only coined in the eighties and it was really coined because of Warhol. So Warhol in the summer of 1985 was given his first Amiga 1000 home computer by Commodore International And he signed on with the company as a brand ambassador. And for the launch, Commodore planned a theatrical performance, which featured Warhol on stage at the Lincoln Center with a rock and roll icon and lead singer of Blondie, Debbie Harry. So in front of a live audience, Warhol used the computer software, ProPaint, to create a portrait of Harry. So the way that I see digital art, um, the history of it, it also includes... Um, video art because now we're sort of um, we do include it because now video is a form of digital art and I just want to really briefly mention um, so for video art it was really uh, started with the fluxus movement and the fluxus movement was started with John Cage who's a sound artist and he believed life is art art is life that was the philosophy of fluxus artists so they basically approached art um, also as performative, but they didn't, they approached art in every aspect of life. And so because of all of these kinds of um, themes and philosophies, you know, fluxus means to flow. Um, And basically in this way, you know, they believed that art was important because it was a means to make one aware of one's actual environment. And so you can see kind of in the, the history of video art, 
um, but also in the history of digital art, there's a lot of synergy that and and aspects of it that we can take into play in a contemporary landscape and view of how to approach digital art as a whole. That's pretty cool. I uh, the the uh, the Fortran programming <laughs> gives me a little twitch. Uh, <laughs> I remember taking that class in college. So. Yeah, the punch cards. And actually, yeah, I mean, it's it's just, it's really interesting to see how these artists that were pioneering, you know, the use of art in these programs, you know, their their work is, if you look back and you, and you see, you know, this artist in particular had a history as a painter, and you can really uh-huh. see this painterly approach um, to his work, but there's also a conceptual element that is, that is seen in that digital landscape. And now, of course, with the proliferation of NFTs, digital art really has like a new center stage, um, you know, within uh, the art world. Certainly, mm-hmm. you know, galleries um, and and major um, auction houses are now very seriously looking at, at NFTs and digital artists. Um, I wouldn't say for the first time, but they're really in the forefront for the first time because of um, what's been happening over, you know, the last couple of years and really, I think, propelled also by, um, uh, you know, the pandemic as well as Ethereum mm-hmm. and, and Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. So you talk about um, the, you know, digital art in public places as being part of your, you know, your mission. What what are some projects you're maybe working on currently? And can you talk a little bit about that in public places aspect of the work? Yeah, totally. So um, I just had the honor of collaborating on a major project with Panasonic and Show Imaging. Um, and in April, as the world started opening up from the pandemic, we curated Luminex Dialogues of Light in the South Park District of Los Angeles. Luminex uh, was an outdoor walkable digital art exhibition, the very first of its kind, and it was fully self-guided using a QR code and interactive map experience. It featured on walls that were 200 feet by 70 feet, six digital artists at six architecturally distinct walls, and they were all within walking distance, and it was for one night. The artists were internationally acclaimed, but based in Los Angeles. Um, it was a big part of us to, to curate artists that were local um, to the city. It included Rafiq Anandal, Nancy Baker Cahill, Sarah Rara, Carol Kim, Luciana Abite, and Akiko Yamashita. So shout out to those artists. If you don't know who they are, you definitely want to um, check them out. Because each of the artists transformed and approached the projection and their site with a different story or kind of dialogue of light using video and sound. Um, Some of the projects were fully immersive, like Luciana Abite's Waterfall. It was incredible to see people's response jumping underneath the waterfall and having the water falling on them. Um, Wow. And then Sarah's piece was um, driven really by poetry and narrative. And her piece was a multi-channel work on two sides of a building. Um, Incredible. And Carol's was all live. So she had live, you know, performers, dancing, musicians. Um, So each of the artists, Rafiq's was obviously um, representative of data that he was collecting from LAX. 
um, in terms of the air quality uh, um, in Los Angeles. So they were all really, you know, and Nancy does uh, a lot of work with AR. So her piece had an AR component to it. They were, and Akiko's, like they were all incredible, but they all sort of spoke to um, different approaches for digital art. Yeah. Um, But the thing that really made it incredible was not just the size of the work, the quality of the, of the artists in terms of how they were approaching, but the actual quality of the technology. It's very rare to see, um, a museum quality, uh, you know, exhibition with projection outside and, you know, the quality of all of the, um, projectors was, was incredible and show imaging did an exceptional job because they had to stage, you know, six locations. Um, and they only had the prep time of one night. Um, it was, Oh my gosh, it was crazy. Yeah. We used 50 K projectors, um, many 30 or 30 K projectors and 20 K projectors, um, as Uh well as, uh, JBL speakers. So, um, there was 15,000 people that showed up for this, uh, one night event and, um, more than 13,200 people utilized the QR code and the interactive map and over 400 people joined on the live stream from around the world. So, wow, you know, it's been, um, an incredible experience. And I think the, you know, the businesses, but the residents, um, you know, it's been very overwhelming because, mm-hmm. um, I feel like what digital art in this particular form brings to the table, unlike a lot of other forms of, of public art is that it's immersive and there's a sound component and a visual component. And if you think about healing and, and art therapy and, and, you know, in its different forms, both of these mediums, especially if they're immersive or, you know, um, they don't even need to be interactive because they're, they're already not passive. They bring the mm-hmm. viewer, they transport the viewer into, into a different landscape without um, dissuading the site specificity or the landscape that they're in. So they almost created this portal and the way that they touched people emotionally was palpable. It was, um, it was like some, some of the quotes were like, I felt like I was in a rock concert. People were sitting in front of these pieces for, like hours, um, and crying and it was really, it's so, yeah. So I think that, you know, know, I, I love how you said though, it was immersive. It didn't have to be interactive. I think, um, that's oftentimes a default, uh, logic that to be immersive has to somehow be interactive, but that's fascinating. The, um, engagement that you had with the, the audience through a visual and audio experience. That's so cool. Yeah, because I think that the work, um, the work is informed by the artist. Be in it, you know, they're thinking about their audience. Excellent public art is site-specific. Excellent public art is thinking about their audience. And so in those ways, you know, I think even excellent art is, is the same way. It you know, the aesthetics and the draw and the craft is what pulls people in to the work and engages people and gives them a key to, 
to understand and connect with the work on a very human level, a unifying level. And that's the power of art. Um, and that's the power of art in our urban landscape, because, you know, truth be told, there were, you know, when you're, um, curating public art, you're curating it for everyone. Um, Mm -hmm. a really beautiful moment that I had at this exhibition was walking towards Rafiq's piece. Um, and there was a houseless individual just leaning up against a wall, staring at it. And I invited him to come closer and it was, you know, it's, it's those moments of, you know, the Latino family that felt like they, you know, had to get a ticket and pay for these experiences and they're invited in. It's just, it's, it's Mm -hmm. this moment that bridges, um, people that, um, really is a driver for why I get up and do what I do every day. That's gotta be a tremendous motivation. Um, You also had at one point had noted that uh, now art's role is to be a stakeholder and a visionary organization working to showcase how integral and important art is in the urban landscape. And let's talk a little about how technology plays into that and and what um, some of us in the technology industry can do to be good allies. Yeah. So that's, that's a, those are great questions because, um, I have a lot to say about that. So, um, it's a good thing that this is going to be edited afterwards. Cause I could just go on, but I'll start off with saying that the evolution of smart cities and urban planning, you know, let's think about that for a second, because art is a real connection between the physical world and the emotional world. So as we're trying to utilize, um, our urban planning, you know, to be more, um, responsive to people, um, and track and, and, you know, be more efficient in, in many different ways. Um, we can't negate the importance of art and the art world because we saw it with, um, the lack of art that was, um, you know, through COVID, there was just this real, um, void, um, sure. And cut off of, of art and, and how that impacted people on so many different levels. And so using technology in a framework of smart cities, um, I think is really important because art should have a seat at the table, um, as a source of inspiration, but also, um, a, a driver so that we don't, you know, create these, um, urban landscapes that are just, um, devoid of that emotional, um, human, um, experiences. Um, I have a, a small story about, you know, in terms of the integration and importance of art, um, with technology, I was working on a project, um, that was called the Triforium. We got a grant from the Gold Hirsch Foundation to help restore, this project. It was by an artist named Joseph Young. He was given in 1975 close to a million dollars for a piece that was meant to be Los Angeles's equivalent of the Eiffel Tower. So this artist created um, this monumental work, which was the very first polyphenoptic um, tower. So polyphenoptic is the the intersection of light and sound. Um, And the artist considered it to be the Rosetta Stone of art and technology. 
So what he created was um, a series of these bells and lights that were supposed to synchronize um, with music. So there was these lighting effects that as they were um, played on a synthesizer, a computer from 1975 basically would play through a speaker system built into the Triforium um, the sound, but also um, the analog, um, or, or sorry, the the um, images of light. So he, for like the, the note D, he would have, you know, a certain sequence of lighting that would be realized. Anyways, the, the project, because of the computer's um, uh, technology was antiquated and there was a lot of problems with the computer because the artist saw a vision of the future and the technology really supported it. So when we went to go and restore the piece, we had a lot of conversations about, well, is restoration really the restoration of the computer or is the restoration really being able to utilize new technology and realize the artist's vision of the piece in its entirety? And so we worked with the Joseph Young Foundation and his daughters to go through all of his writings and and very clearly understood from the artist that the technology was a way to enhance the vision. And this kind of goes back to um, what what Charles was was talking about, the very first digital artist, that, you know, art is not, you know, reliant on technology, but it, it should be a way to enhance the art. And so because we worked with, um, we have this new technology, we were able to realize the Triforium. And I think that's a really important lens to look at how art and technology can intersect so that they can be um, considerate of the artworks in a long-term scenario. Sure. That you don't have to figure out who can play the floppy drive, <laughs> which computer can run the punch card or, right? Oh my gosh. I, uh, yeah. yeah. It was incredible because we actually worked with a computer, um, like an uh, um, archaeologist. <laughs> That's right. And he was, it was fascinating because he was just so thrilled to be working on this project and he understood. So what we had essentially were these ticker tape, um, like this was, this was how we identified the original light sequences. And there was only a few of them that were left. And I don't even think that they were found in a box in, um, the Triforium around the area where the computer was. And I don't think that anyone would have recognized the value of what it was until he said, look, this is the, this is the brain. This is the, this is the artwork. And then he retranslated that with new computer software to be able to realize this, this vision. And honestly, when we did the Triforium project, we invited local musicians. There was a ton of people that came and the daughters couldn't have been more thrilled because they felt for the first time their father's vision of the Triforium, which was plagued with criticism in the art world. You know, it has been sort of like this... Um, reborn. Yeah, it was reborn for the first time. So it and it's really immortal a- now, right? If, it, if as technology evolves, it's just a, a contemporary expression of his vision and it just can continue... 
that's wild. It is. And I think it's a great opportunity for Los Angeles. So, you know, we did the activations as a temporary activation in the hopes that we could show the city, the Department of Cultural Affairs, the importance of this work and why it was important to restore it, not with the antiquated computer system, but with new technology. And so it's sort of on pause right now because I think they're doing, um, you know, work in the civic center area and they might need to move it or, you know, but this is a really important sculpture because it was the first polyphenoptic sculpture and it shows that visionary quality that artists can bring to the table. Um, and you know, this is, it's an honor to have a Los Angelino be that person, um, who was really forging, um, the future of technology and putting technology and art, um, at the forefront of contemporary, of the contemporary art world you know, to his, uh, you know, and, and, and the poor guy just got nothing but criticism for his piece because nobody understood it. Um, well, what do they say? Like the best idea is crazy at first, right? It's, (laughs) isn't that some, some butchering of an Einstein quote, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So what advice would you give other curators or artists that are interested in in looking into incorporating technology into their work? I mean, this has got to spark some inspiration in some folks. What what advice would you offer? So I think it's really important to um, to be the the way that I consult and I curate is just really in a collaborative environment, listening, thinking bigger. Um, you know, you mentioned before, you know, uh, about like what the technology companies can do, um, to, to support art, the association that we had, uh, the opportunity that we had the similar to the opportunity that Warhol had with, um, with Commodore International was really having these technology partners as collaborators at the table so that there can be exploration and there can be, um, you know, mutual, uh, innovation and forging out what I consider to be like a very unchartered territory in terms of technology and art in the public realm. Mm -hmm. Also, I think it's, it's, um, making sure that technology is an enhancer of the art, the way that Joseph Young's Triforium, he, he wasn't leaning into the technology because technology will shift. It's, it's a, ongoing conversation. There's an evolution that will continually happen. And so being able to create artwork that understands that ethos and that positions itself so that it's not um, a disqualifier for the artwork being viable or, you know, um, able to continue to be seen or shown is really important. And I think that's really at the crux of everything. Um, because the concept that the artist is creating, the vision that they're creating, the methodology that they're creating, um, it and all need to be in sync with each other. Um, also, I think it's really important to analyze site specificity, um, not just for environmental factors in the public realms specifically, but also with the community and what the community needs. Our positioning of Luminex in the South Park region was both a logistical decision, but also it responded to the community that's in South Park. There, There's a lot of technology. That's where the um, convention center, Staples Center, there's a lot of digital um, 
you know, walls and, and, you know, it's in an urban environment. So it was really responsive to the residents that, um, were in that community. And so I think both placing digital art and technology, um, in an urban landscape needs to have those considerations first and foremost at hand. So just kind of wrapping up a little, what, where would you, where do you see, or where would you like to see art and technology going in the next, say, five, 10 years? This is, I love this. The million dollar question, question, right? Yeah. (laughs) And that's why I like to say, you know, uh, you can answer it either way, where you think it'll go or where you'd like it to go. Maybe you can kind of put that out in the universe and... (laughs) So the future of public art is yet to be seen. I mean, this is, this is the most, so for me, that energy that I felt with the De La Guarda experience, that, you know, that palpable, um, energizing factor, you know, I'm a little bit of an anarchist. Um, and I love, you know, I love, um, Descent, like I, I love disruption and disruption in the public art world is going to be in sync with, with technology and the evolution of that. So what I would say is imagine a world where art and technology can enable us to connect on an emotional level with each other that informs, um, you know, our cultural landscape but also um, supports us in terms of our um, inspiration and motivates us to be more innovative in almost all of the fields. I think that the only way to do that is to be able to give access to these experiences to everyone um, without it being a ticketed or an institutionalized um, um, event. So, For me, I think the art industry, where it's heading, is going to be um, leaning a lot more into the digital art world, um, for sure, with the NFT proliferation. But I also think that there's going to be a lot more um, runway in the public art division, specifically. You know, we haven't even gone into our full exploration of holograms and holographics um, sensors, thing, tracking public responses to art, um, and, and sort of understanding like, you know, um, how art can be placed within urban landscapes in a, in a more curated way. So, yeah, I, I think that we need to recognize that the companies investing in public art, they also need to be able to see an ROI, but, that ROI to me is not, is not a fiscal one necessarily. Yeah. The return doesn't always have to be dollars, but that, um, it sounds like a very bright future for public art and art and technology to, to really, um, inspire each other and, uh, work together. There's so much opportunity. Uh, it sounds like you're just sort of getting to the first, to the first few layers of code. <laughs> well put. So thank you so much. I so enjoyed talking to you today. Yeah, this was lovely. I really appreciate your time and um, yeah, and reaching out to have this conversation. Sure. And just a quick note to our listeners before we sign off, if you've enjoyed today's conversation in this podcast, you can help others discover it by giving us a five-star rating on iTunes and subscribing to The Big Rethink. 
So that's it for us today. I'm Susan Campbell, and that's another episode of The Big Rethink. 